Eavesdrop on experts, stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. It's safe to say that 2020 threw up a unique set of challenges that has not only disrupted our lives, but has also transformed experiences of dying, death, disposal and commemoration. COVID-19 forced us to be creative in how we harness technology to be present for others and make mourning meaningful. Dr. Hannah Gould is a cultural anthropologist interested in questions of death and discarding, material culture and spirituality. Her research spans new traditions and technologies of death rites, the life cycle of religious materials and minimalist movements. Hannah Gould is ARC Research Fellow at the Death Tech Research Team, based at the University of Melbourne. It's an interdisciplinary research group investigating the intersection of death and technology in the 21st century. She now researches high-tech death and how the COVID-19 pandemic is changing the way we deal with the dead. Dr. Hannah Gould sat down for a Zoom chat with Dr. Andy Horvath. So what do you tell people at barbecues that you do? Look, it's definitely a topic that gets a lot of interest. Um, usually I say that I've just come from a photo shoot at a crematorium or um, interviews with morticians um, or quite recently, you know, I've been attending a lot of funerals happening during COVID. So it's been quite a year to study death. I, I like to tell people that I'm interested in the stuff of death and the death of stuff. So I'm interested in material objects, material culture and technology and how we use those technologies to forge a relationship with the dead, um, both dead bodies but also the kind of dead as a memory or a spirit or an ancestor after they've passed on. Um, so I'm really interested in kind of how when someone's become absent, all the different ways in which we try and make them present in our lives. So you're a cultural anthropologist. What does that mean? Does that mean you kind of look at an aspect of culture sort of through the eyes of you're an alien that's just landed on the planet without judgment? Yeah, in, in many ways it does. Um, cultural anthropology, I suppose, is all about attempting to adopt the worldview of another group of people or someone else within your same culture, but perhaps who has very different experiences from you. So that kind of old adage about trying to walk a mile in somebody's shoes. Anthropologists really spend a lot of time getting to know somebody, um, not just in formal interviews or surveys or something like that, but actually hanging out with them at work, in the break room, um, in different aspects of their life online to try and work out what it means to be that person and what it means to see the world from their perspective. So we both have what is called um, an emic perspective, which means to look at the world from an insider position. And then we bring to that what's called an etic perspective. So that's kind of an external theoretical framework. So we both engage with a kind of theory of social sciences and then also bring to that really close attention, ethnographic detail to how people live their lives to solve contemporary issues that affect us all today. So what do you research as part of your death tech group, which is an interesting title in itself? Yeah, so the death tech group is an interdisciplinary research team based here at the University of Melbourne. And the team is made up of anthropologists like myself, but also um, specialists in human-computer interaction. Um, we have also some media studies scholars and some science and technology studies scholars. 
And we are all interested in questions of death, technology and social change. So how is it that new technologies are transforming our understanding of death, memorialization, and grief, but also how are big social shifts affecting, I suppose, the future of death in Australia and how are we trying to respond to those through various technologies? So, for example, our earliest work, we began researching ideas like mourning on Facebook. So how does social media affect processes of grief and memorialization? And more recently, we've moved on to other questions about cemeteries and about the treatment and handling of dead bodies in Australia. Well, give us some insights into those explorations. What has surprised you or what's emerged from this research? Yeah, one of the things I'm really, I mean, continually surprised about is just how creative um, and resilient people can be around death and dying and memorialization. I think there's a a kind of belief, both <laughs> maybe popular and also within scholarship, that death is very taboo, first of all, and that people are very traditional or conservative in their ideas about what they want to, what to happen to them and also to happen to their loved ones around death. But actually, you know, we continually encounter a great degree of creativity in how people want to memorialise the dead, how people want to be remembered when they themselves have died and how people feel about things like the future of our cemeteries and kind of cemetery spaces. Um, so to just give one example, we recently, as part of the Future Cemetery Project, um, which we're collaborating on with the Greater Metropolitan Cemeteries Trust um, as a linkage grant here in Victoria, we've been looking at the future of Australian cemeteries. And we recently conducted a national um, survey of the Australian population, a representative sample survey, about their ideas about the future of Australian cemeteries and kind of what should happen. And I, I thought people would be quite really conservative in their ideas about, you know, cemeteries are very solemn places. Um, they're only for mourning, only for funerals. But actually what we found is that two thirds of people were open to kind of new and perhaps innovative uses for cemetery space, um, whether that be something like a walking tour or a botanical garden or even something kind of more out there like uh, perhaps, you know, fitness classes or um, spaces for dog walking or even um, public events like theatre or, um, you know, festivals, that sort of thing. So people are actually a lot more, I think, open to transformation and change around death than we might originally think they are. I remember as a kid, um, I found cemeteries quite scary, um, but a friend of mine said they're just seashells and I thought that's a very calming way to think about cemeteries. Aren't we running out of space for cemeteries? What's the technology that uh, might take us into the future with um, the management of the deceased? Yeah, we are running out of space. Um, it's one of the big challenges that are affecting cemeteries in Australia, but also, I suppose, around the world. Um, there are some countries, for example, some areas of our neighbours in Southeast Asia and Northeast Asia where space is really at a premium and, you know, they're actually pulling people out of the ground, closing down cemeteries because there's really no space for the dead. Obviously, you think Australia, gosh, we've got a lot of space, we've got a lot of land, how can it be that we're running out of cemetery space? But the problem with cemeteries is, um, first of all, you know, we could move them further and further and further away from the living, further away from the cities, but people generally want to be quite close to their dead so that they can go and visit the graves. So it's not just a matter of building cemeteries kind of further out into the countryside. It's about finding space in our urban city centres for the dead. And that can mean, you know, trying to find new ways to use public space that integrate 
burials and also um, open park spaces or different kinds of recreational spaces. It can also mean looking to new ways of treating and handling human remains um, and new technologies that are coming in. So, you know, if we look at contemporary Australia, we know that 70% of people, around 70% at the moment, are adopting cremation. Um, and that number has really steadily been rising since after the Second World War. Um, there are, however, several communities, particularly Islamic, uh, Jewish communities, um, Orthodox, Catholic communities, for whom cremation is never going to be an option. Um, and so we do have to continue to look for space for burials. But there's also outside of burial and cremation all these kind of new technologies that are emerging. So things, for example, like human composting, um, also known as natural organic reduction, which has recently been legalised in Washington State in Seattle. And that's kind of a way, I suppose, of accelerating what would be a normal decomposition process in the ground. So, you know, we might bury someone in a, a coffin, in a casket and put them in the ground now and it might take 20, 30 years for that grave to be what might be called, you know, reusable, empty again, or, or cleared of remains, um, depending on the location and lots of different factors. But this is a process where they're kind of promising that within two to three months, even a matter of weeks, that they could transform um, the human body into soil. And that soil could then be used on national parks or somewhere else. And so it's a way of kind of reducing the amount of space that we devote to the dead without, I suppose, lessening the importance that we continue to place on, on death memorialization um, in the city. So it's really exciting to look at those new possibilities coming from overseas and to think about how they might be applicable to the Australian situation and how also Australians and their particular relationship to death and cemeteries um, might allow us to find new creative uses for cemeteries. How has the digital age changed the way we ritualise death or memorialization? Yeah, so the digital revolution, I suppose, um, has had a huge impact, not only on how we live our lives, but obviously also how we interact with the dead. As I said, the earliest parts of the Death Tech team were really in response to these quite public incidences of Facebook memorial pages, but also then those pages being trolled and kind of different types of interaction that, that can happen on those spaces. It's quite interesting to think both that, that, you know, when we die now, we not only leave a whole heap of physical possessions for people to look after and care for, but we also leave a huge amount of digital um, information for our for future generations to care for. And that can be obviously both a blessing in many, in many cases for our future generations to, to connect with us. But, you know, it can also be a curse. Um, it can also be a bit daunting. There's not not every part of your identity that you've shared online you maybe want people to know about and you know that can, it's quite difficult to access and there's lots of problems around for example who owns it and, and you know what you can do with it but it also gives us a whole nother technological I suppose tool for us to forge a relationship with the dead um, so for us to you know re-enliven those relationships with someone who's absent and one of the really interesting things that our team has found about the digital spaces and these kind of tools is that in many cases they bring, at least in Western death culture, they bring an animation and liveliness to the dead that previously wasn't there. So if we think about the kind of major metaphors or major ideas that we use in Australia and the West to think about death, one of them is sleep, right? So the idea that the dead are at sleep in a cemetery, actually our world for cemetery comes from the Greek for a sleeping place. And so, you know, it's the dead are at peace, for example. But now the dead are at peace, but they're also popping up with Facebook notifications, right? Or they're on your Twitter or for some people, you know, 
even you might have an AI bot that tweets out for you after you've if you've got, you've passed. So, you know, all of a sudden you might have died, but you might have a, a hot take on the latest election results, for example, which is a whole nother layer of agency and kind of uh, animus animation that's been awarded to the dead through these digital technologies. So it really, you know, has the potential to shift our relation, um, our understanding of, you know, what does it mean to be alive? Or what does it mean to be dead? If you can continue participating in contemporary debates, you know, when does your identity end? When does your social agency end? And then how do the living and the dead kind of both occupy that same social space, which I think is a really fascinating question and, and one that we just kind of have to hold on tight because it's all going to, you know, emerge in the next couple of years and it'll be interesting to find out what happens on that. You've been working on some case studies under this COVID era. Mm. Um, you have an interesting paper which is Research at a Distance, Japanese studies in the age of COVID-19. <laughs> yeah, so I've been really interested actually about how COVID-19 is affecting both the work that we do as researchers. So I suppose the implications for professional labour and what it means to actually be an anthropologist. Obviously, for anthropology in particular, you know, as I was talking about field work and being there, being with people, hanging out with them is essential to how we do our work. And that's really difficult when you're not allowed to, for example, go outside or move 5K from your house. So I've been doing a little bit of work recently, both on thinking about how Japan studies and how kind of researchers who work in different countries around the world might conduct research, but also then about how death and dying in Australia, I suppose, is affected by that and, and how is we as researchers there's an interesting kind of uh, analogy or similarity between these ideas of being far apart that the researcher experiences, but also that the bereaved family or the society experiences. You know, we can't go to the field, we can't do our work, but also, you know, that kind of experience of absence or distance is very much shared by people who are actually, you know, would love to be with their loved ones who are dying or would love to be in the hospital, in hospice, would love to be at the funeral home. And so we have also... <laughs> like the bereaved, you know, had to connect through Zoom and, and through all these new tools in order to try and experience the presence of the dead, right, and to be with them. And that's been very, very challenging, both for scholars and I suppose for everyone in a way. So it's a kind of interesting shared experience that we, we've been able to feel with our, with our research subjects and something that hopefully, you know, we're not sure how long it'll go on for, but hopefully we can get back into the field sometime soon. During COVID, it's confronted us with our own mortality and the mortality of others. This must be a really difficult area to research. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting as somebody who researches death, you know, and in particular researches things like cremation and body care and embalming and, and that sort of thing. You'd think that there's not a lot that can shock you. You know, we have conversations in cafes about various aspects of death care, which I'm sure we get very odd looks about. And, you know, we really think about this a lot. And so I think that for many you know, we, we've kind of blocked out or overcome a lot of those fears and taboos around death. But that being said, you know, when I, I took on this project um, on Australian death care during COVID, not only was, you know, I kind of forced to confront the kind of realities of what it would mean to try and do field work, to do interviews during a pandemic and in situations in which you can, you know, be putting yourself into kind of risk as a researcher, attending funerals and talking to people. But also, I suppose, the kind of emotional realities that people who work in death care have taken on during this period. We often in Australia in particular or around the world, you know, we have these kind of clap for the carers 
or, you know, frontline heroes. And that's often really focused around healthcare, right? The healthcare professionals, doctors who are doing extraordinary work, but it also should be noted that the kind of end line, you know, the, the frontline workers who work in death care, they have simultaneously, you know, they've also been putting themselves on the line to care for the dead and provide this completely essential service, which is very rarely recognised as, as an essential service. No, re- not recognised necessarily by the government, um, not necessarily recognised by popular culture, by media. And so all of the, you know, just the kind of baseline stigma and taboos that they have about their job and the work that they do is just being entirely compounded by this new situation of COVID. Um, You know, I've talked to crematorium workers who, uh, you know, on the usual day would maybe cremate five, six bodies who all of a sudden are asked to do twice the amount, right? And so they're working until 11.30 late into the night cremating cases of COVID and people who have died. And those people who have died who are in their care, they have an extreme level of respect and care and love for the dead and they want to do their best by them particularly when they know sometimes that 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 person has has not seen any bereaved family member for a very long time because of lockdown so that this death has kind of happened in isolation and so they they feel extreme pride and 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 kind of I suppose responsibility in the work that they do but it's it's work that's often invisible Um, And when it is talked about, it's a difficult conversation. So as much as the research itself was, has been quite difficult and particularly kind of looking at and assessing all those materials of, of mass death coming from New York and from London now as well. I, I, you know, I always, as a researcher, trying to just think about how difficult it has been for people who I'm interviewing, who work in mortuaries, who work in funeral, funeral homes um, and who work in, crematoria and try and make sure that I can do everything I can to bring their voices into the open um, and to, to, to kind of ask the public to kind of recognise the labour they do because it's not necessarily pretty and it's not necessarily labour that we like to think about, but it is essential. And I think that when, when you die yourself, I think you can only hope that you would be awarded the same amount of, of care and respect that, that those people perform every day. Are there misconceptions that people have about death and is it blurry because it goes into the realm of religion? Yes, I think there are a lot of misconceptions that people have about death and particularly about modern death care as it operates in Australia. I think it's it's worth noting that we live in this kind of age, um, this modern way of death, which has been really characterised by, you know, classic theory as the kind of sequestration of death so that we're not so much in contact with the dying and the dead um, as much as we used to be. You think of that word funeral home or funeral parlour and the original origins of the word funeral parlour were that your your parlour, the front room of your house, would be where the dead body was kept, right, and so where you would care for the dead and wash and dress them and prepare them. But we don't really do that anymore, okay? So death care has become professionalised and we rely on, you know, others to care for our dead. You know, with some exceptions, it should be said that some communities still do perform all those labours, particularly in Australia. Some communities are really involved in that labour. And the other thing is that, you know, a lot of us are no longer dying at home. So we're not necessarily open or experienced in a dying process. Um, Even if we'd really, really love to die at home, and when surveyed, most Australians actually say they'd love to die at home, what ends up happening is that we mostly die in hospitals or in aged care or palliative care for a number of reasons. That can be a good outcome and that can be a negative outcome depending on the situation. 
But it does mean that we're not necessarily experiencing dying and death from a young age. And it's often something that we don't really think about or necessarily want to think about. And so when we come to have to kind of deal with, we're forced to confront death, um, that can create some really big misconceptions and also problems for people. People are not aware of their options. And there's a huge range of options, but people kind of really don't know what to do. They feel uncertain. Um, they might feel insecure. And that can leave them to either choosing something that they later regret or perhaps picking something that's too expensive and they didn't need to spend that money or being pressured into a certain option that they didn't want and, you know, having conflicts within families about what's the best option. And often that's just because the dying, the dead themselves have not made clear what their intentions are, what they'd like to happen with them because we don't really talk about death so much in our society. So, you know, it is the kind of a huge kind of question about, you know, should we try to be encouraging as researchers, as scholars as well, us to have these conversations? I think we've got better about it. I think millennials and hopefully even baby boomers, I think, are becoming more and more kind of confident about talking about this with their families. In Australia in particular, baby boomers are going to have a lot of power, a lot of kind of influence and significance in, in shaping our death culture because there are so many of them baby boomers are this huge generation and they're now reaching an age where they're getting closer towards the kind of average age of mortality so they're going to need to start thinking about these conversations and I think you know in the next kind of 10 to 20 years we are going to see as baby boomers confront their own mortality these conversations kind of come to the fore in Australian public discourse but that also means that we probably need to make some huge shifts in how Australia deals with dead and dying and so those are the kind of changes that we're trying to identify and advocate for. I really like the fact that you've asked us to think not just about the healthcare workers, but the death care workers, and that the conversations regarding our death, our own, and of others, needs to be normalised. Is there anything else that you'd like to activate in society, given a podium or some extra funding? Oh, wow, a podium and or some extra funding. What a, what a, I think, you know, I think for me, a lot of it is about death care workers and understanding that, yes, they are a part of a commercial industry, but they are also doing extraordinary work. Um, I'd love for people to think more about their own death and mortality and how that might affect, you know, future generations, et cetera, and then, you know, what they'd like to happen for them. I think the other thing that's really important in Australia and what I'd love us to think more about and to kind of more centre in our conversations around death and dying are the real diversity and breadth of our death cultures. And, you know, the, the kind of we kind of think of funerals, you know, the Australian funeral and the Australian death, we kind of know what that is. But really that's, that's quite a one-dimensional view of perhaps a white Anglo Christian idea of what a funeral is. And, and that can really be problematic when it comes to things like government legislation around funerals, around dying and death, for example. So, you know, during the COVID lockdown, a lot of the government guidelines were about how many people could attend a funeral. But what does a funeral mean? Is that a wake? Is that a visitation to the, to the grave? Is that sitting shiver? Um, is that sort of kind of some ancestor worship fest festival or, you know, a memorial that happens many weeks or months after? You know, we've been told also that, you know, you're not necessarily allowed to wash and dress the dead, but that implication has very different significance for someone who's in a tradition where washing and dressing and shrouding the dead has huge significance and implications for the kind of afterlife and the future welfare of that, that deceased soul. 
So we have kind of this idea of what Australian death culture is, but we often don't really appreciate just how diverse our death traditions are and how much that diversity is going to affect the future of death care in Australia. You know, and and we need to make decisions and make sure when we're making public policy that those communities and those conversations are always at the forefront because otherwise we make policy and we make decisions around death that really can adversely affect a lot of people. The next time we drive past a cemetery or a crematorium or visit a gravesite, what would you like us to think about? Stop the car, get out, (laughs) go take a walk. (laughs) Um, Cemeteries are amazing spaces to kind of walk around and experience. I mean, we often do it when we're overseas, you know, you go to historical cemeteries, et cetera, but you don't think to go to the one in your backyard, right? And I think you really should, you know, um, cemeteries are extraordinary historical landmarks that tell the, you know, tell the history of our country now, of our communities, not only who's there and who's memorialised and how they're memorialised, but who's not there, who's not given a big gravestone, um, who's not made part of the public talk or, you know, who's not got the huge angel or the cathedral or whatever built on top of them. Um, I think if you want to understand the diversity, Australia's, Victoria's multiculturalism, you should go to Faulkner Cemetery or Springvale Cemetery and just walk through the cemetery and see how many different ways there are of burying and memorialising the dead. Um, You can see a huge range of religions, a huge range of cultural practices. You can see graves going back to, you know, the 1800s, you know, 1700s. You can see some of the original, um, you know, Jewish graves that have now been moved to Faulkner Cemetery where it's extraordinary I think they're amazing sites that could be so much better utilised and activated, not just for experiences of, of grief and memorialization, which are obviously really important, for, but for, for us to understand who we are as, as a community, as a country. I think, you know, cemeteries are really great places that need to be explored and they can also help us have some kind of interesting conversations about death and kickstart that conversation about what you might like to happen to you. Dr. Hannah Gould, you've really made me think about death and dying. And I think um, I'd like to be human compost, but I'd like a plaque somewhere with something humorous on it. Thank you for talking to us. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Thank you to Dr. Hannah Gould, cultural anthropologist and ARC research fellow at the Death Tech Research Team based at the University of Melbourne. And thanks to Dr. Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts, Stories of Inspiration and Insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on January 14, 2021. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Production, audio engineering and editing by me, Chris Hatzis. Co-production, Sylvie Van Wall and Dr. Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2021, the University of Melbourne. If you enjoyed this episode, review us on Apple Podcasts and check out the rest of the Eavesdrop episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatzis. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.